ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. This is a scene of ruin for me, financial <laughs> ruin for me. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of glad to, to talk. I'm hoping I'll get a discount or something like that as a result of doing this. Um, and I also want to, to thank Lucasta Miller and the people at uh, Notting Hill Editions for this wonderful set of, of of books uh, about the essay. Um, it's very hard to write essays that get uh, published uh, because it's a form that's usually too short for a regular publisher and too long for uh, journals. So it fills a really important literary niche uh, for writers and I think as well for readers. Uh, certainly, that's been true for for me uh, with this um, this little book called *The Foreigner*, which is two essays that I wrote at very different times in my life um, about the condition of uh, being a foreigner. Uh, parts of one were were published in my book *Flesh and Stone*, but were greatly reduced by my um, uh, cruel and uh, 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 insensitive publisher. So it's a, real, it's a real pleasure to see the whole uh, uh, essay in, in print. And these two um, essays are bookends to a problem about the, the identity of people who become foreigners. Uh, the first essay, which is about uh, Jews who uh, made a life in the first ghetto in Venice in the 16th century, were people whose identity uh, was very much tied to the place uh, where they came to live. And the second essay, which is about the great um, 19th century revolutionary Alexander Herzen, is about somebody who was sent into exile and gradually came to terms with the idea that he had no place and that he, uh, he, was, he belonged nowhere. 
And he came to terms with it not as a matter of suffering, but as a kind of freedom. So the books are a kind of bookend about this pro- process of, uh, of the identity exile. And I'll describe a little about what's in both these essays. They're historical. And I thought just at the end of these comments to say something about why this problem matters now and even something about why it's uh, mattered in a project uh, sponsored by my own family since uh, 1946, which addresses the condition of exiles. Um, So let me first tell you something about the Jews of Renaissance uh, Venice. Um, There had been, all around the uh, Mediterranean, there had been Jews since uh, 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 pre-Christian times. But there was a very large colony, as you probably know, of Jews in uh, Spain who were expelled in 1492, um, uh, as were Muslims at that time. And these Jews began perambulating the Mediterranean and finally made their way into Venice in the beginning of the 1500s, 1502, 1503. Uh, so many of them came that the Venetian authorities decided they, had, uh, they, they were a threat, that there were too many of these foreigners, these non-Christians there. And they decided to build the first self-contained ghetto Uh, which they began to do in 1516. And, uh, you know, the word ghetto comes from jetare, which was the old word for foundry. And in Venice, there had been an island called the ghetto, which was originally foundry. And it was a complete island. And what the authorities decided to do was to... um, move all the Jews in Venice to this island. Um, Jews were allowed to go about their business. Most of them were small peddlers, money changers. Um, uh, Some of them were craftsmen. Uh, To go about their business in the city during the day. And then at night, by nightfall, the Jews had to go back to this ghetto. It had drawbridges. All the drawbridges were, were drawn up at, at nightfall. The Jews were sealed in, and there were boats that patrolled around the ghetto so that no Jews could get out. And in a further refinement of this isolation, all the windows in the ghetto that gave to the outside world had to be sealed at this same time. So it was a lightless, dark, sealed place patrolled by a version of the police. Um, this is what's called the um, uh, vec- uh, the new uh, ghetto. There was another island uh, associated with the old foundry works, and as the Jewish community grew, uh, that uh, ghetto vecchio was uh, was made again as a space for for Jews. 
uh, under the same conditions. There's one little bridge between the two. You can still see it in uh, in uh, Venice. It's been uh, restored, part, thanks to our family. Uh, and I'll tell you about that later. Um, these are places of extreme density. Uh, uh, there was no give on this. So the, the only way that as the numbers of Jews increased, uh, they could find a living was to, to build upward. And this is the, that's why this is a, one of the tallest residential parts of Venice and one of the most uh, um, perilous because these were very poorly built buildings. They caught fire, they fell down, and so on. So it's a condition of real... Um, Isolation, but also within that isolation, an enormous compression. Um, when the Jews were let out to do their business, they were marked uh, by the city in particular ways. And um, uh, I wish I, uh, I, I never published any of the the visual material I get gathered. Uh, about the lives of uh, Jews in Renaissance Venice. I'll tell you one thing that'll give you an idea of what this was, uh, what their lives were like. Uh, Jewish doctors uh, were fairly numerous in Venice, as indeed they were all around the Mediterranean, because Jewish doctors had learned from their Arabic uh, uh, neighbors who were, uh, in the Middle Ages, the sort of medical scientist leaders in Europe. And uh, so the Jewish doctors in Venice became the doctors for Venice itself. They, they concentrated in the city. In order to mark who they were as Jewish doctors, the city obliged these people when they were out on the street to wear a mask which is half a bird it looks like a bird's mask with the bottom cut off huge beak uh, and very large eyes and the doctors who donned this mask were also required to wear very thick leather gloves and the idea about this was that for a foreigner to touch the body of a Christian was something, you know, particularly the bodies of Christian women, was considered something so threatening that in a way the ritual of dehumanizing the doctor, making him, only men at that time, of course, into a kind of strange creature, instantly recognizable, in a way meant that another human being really wasn't touching you. It was this strange person wearing this bird mask with these thick gloves. And almost all the professions that Jews followed in the city had this kind of instant marking. It's the origin of the Nazi yellow star comes out of Venice. Not only Jews wore these, prostitutes also wore yellow stars. Indeed, they liked wearing them because it identified them as, as people in trade. Um, in case anybody was wondering if they were available or not. Uh, but So these are people, the Jews, all of whom are marked in some way uh, like this, in public, this is an extreme, are people when they go 
out to the city, they appear as these horrific or marginalized figures. When they came back into the ghetto at night, the costumes came off and they became human beings with faces and hands. The ghetto began to really um, create a kind of culture of its own based around this rhythm. And God, I'm talking much too much. I try and go fast. For instance, Jews became the greatest coffee drinkers in Venice. And the reason for this was that the study of the Talmud was something they could only do amongst themselves uh, and at night. And so people began drinking more and more coffee in order to stay up, in order to study. And I find this an extremely um, attractive uh, uh, phenomenon. We don't know how much they drank on average. But this was another mark of being Jewish, that you were a coffee drinker uh, rather than a, uh, somebody who had uh, wine or something like that. And there's a whole culture that grew up in the ghetto of from everything like food habits like that to uh, the notion of speaking very softly, uh, which became a mark of, uh, of uh, Jewish behavior in, within the ghetto walls because there were so many people that loud noises in this confined space among this mass of people made it intolerable. Now, this was a space of oppression. It was also a space of protection, and this is the reason why I put it in my book. I'll give you an idea of what the protection was. At Easter, uh, Jews were under particular menace. This is a time, after all, where people really did believe that Jews had been the killers of Christ. And most violent attacks against Jews occurred in the weeks leading up to Easter. The authorities promised to protect Jews from these attacks because they needed their doctors, they needed the people doing money changing, goldsmithing, and so on. Uh, um, That these patrols keeping the Jews in would also keep the Christians out during these periods. Christmas also a time of intense fear for Jews intense fear of attack. Uh, So the authorities made the the, the segregation of the Jews also a source of protection. As long as the Jews of Venice stayed where they belonged. And gradually what that meant was that being Jewish began to be tied as an identity to belonging to a particular place. When we use the term ghettoized, it's laden with this history of feeling a kind of safety by being isolated and having a culture that exists only to the degree that you are isolated from other people. Um, the notion of having rights was tied to the notion of having a place of your own. And it's in that way that identity for these 
exiles began gradually to be subsumed in the notion of living uh, in uh, that identity became tied to place to living someplace where you were isolated from other people uh, segregation and protection became inseparable so that's part of my bookend uh, that's about the foreigners uh, the forging of a foreigner's identity which creates ties a sense of 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 belonging somewhere to the notion of being foreign to others. The flip side of that is the other essay in this book, which is about Alexander Herzen. Book is a wonderful thing about publishing a book of essays. You flip, you don't have to keep things in nice linear order. We flip three centuries forward. And I studied a man who was forced into exile and viewed this kind of ghettoized identity as a terrible, terrible uh, trap. And I'll tell you a little about Herzen's life, a little more briefly than I have about the Jews. He was um, was the illegitimate son of a German father and a Russian mother, very rich, both of them. Herzen comes from Herzlich, heartfelt, made-up name. Uh, he was um, um, well-to-do, well-educated, and radical. And in 1846, he and other many other people like him in Moscow and St. Petersburg were exiled by the then Tsar, whose notion of what to do with political d- dissent was simply uh, 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 to get rid of uh, the dissenters. And a mass of these Russians first descended upon Paris in 1847, uh, just the way they did after the First World War in in, uh, uh, 1919. Uh, They lived in a very tight, compact community, and they thought that the French would be be, um, um, a hospital home for them. And indeed, when the Revolution of 1848 broke out in Paris, many of them thought that the ideals that they had would uh, suddenly be realized uh, in that the Russia they dreamed of would be built in France. The Revolution of 1848 was very short-lived. It was a three-month affair from February, really February to, to June. Have I got my dates right? Not only my cousin, but, but somebody who knows far more about 19th century radicalism than I do. Uh, they fled. Um, uh, they went to Geneva. And then Herzen went in 1851 to, to Britain, where he founded an emigre newspaper called The Bell. And here he had to deal with... Uh, what it meant to be a modern political exile. Uh, uh, Exiled for something that he could change at any time, which is his political beliefs. He renounced, he could go home. But he didn't renounce. He remained a man of the left, believed in constitutional government and so on, and he thought in Britain that he had found a refuge. 
But as he spent, he was a friend of, uh, I think he was a friend of John Stuart Mills. He was, uh, he knew Thackeray. He was uh, mondain, the sort of person who would be in this bookstore all, all the time. Um, and when he was in exile here, he found that he personally faced two kinds of threats. One was that he could simply forget that he could erase the past that he could assimilate. He's the first great critic of assimilation. And there were strong pressures in Britain in the 1850s for people to practice Britishness, famous Gordon Brown phrase, uh, that if you were going to stay here, you had to behave like a native. And Herzen began meeting Russians who had done that, who had taken elocution lessons so that they had no accent. For instance, there was in uh, uh, there was a school that taught Russians how to speak British. Something probably Gordon Brown would have liked as, as well. Um, but they were people who had a kind of twice-formed life, and when he would speak to them in Russian, they would say things to him like, "Well, I'm so similar that I've, I've, you know, I forgot. I'm forgetting all my Russian." And he thought that this was a kind of lie because, of course, they didn't forget. And that assimilation was really a way of denying that you'd had a life. You only had um, a group, as he put it. You had, oh, you had no life. You only had a group. You belonged to, uh, uh, to where you were. The other extreme of that were Russians who were here who were tyrannized by memory, who were so traumatized by the act of leaving Russia and leaving the old culture that they lived here not creating a new kind of culture as the Jews of Venice had done earlier, but simply holding on to everything that was Russian, that was the old country. And these people, he said, suffered from a disease of will, that is, that the, the, they, had no idea, they had no will to live in the present. So this is a kind of Scylla and Charybdis for him. And he thought and wrote in the bell that this is really, these, these are the two antimonies of all exiles who are voluntary, not people who are forced uh, by economic circumstance, who could do other not economic migrants as we think of them who keep a connection to home, but people who have chosen to renounce and then have to deal either with that renunciation taken all the way to the extreme of the erasure of memory or, on the other hand, the tyranny of memory, which weakens the will. For Herzen, there had to be a middle ground for this, and he took really as a motto, the motto that's in this book, which, which comes from, uh, from a French painter, which is, I look in the mirror and I see someone who is not myself. And for Herzen, this was a form of freedom. That is to say that you're always looking at something doubled in yourself uh, that's not you, 
but it's you who's doing the looking. Another way he put it is that home is something that we are constantly reconstructing, remaking. Uh, uh, it's a mobile, unresolved uh, condition. We never lose the desire for it, and we never satisfy it. And for Herzen, that's finally the exile's freedom, to admit both of those things at once. So let me just conclude by saying why I think this matters now. Uh, it's a perplexing issue for us generally, and I'll say something about why in a project my family launched it was particularly perplexing. One way to read the story at this bookend, the, the ghetto bookend, is that the ghetto in Renaissance Venice is the origin of Zionism. Right? That um, uh, uh, Judaism, as a religious practice, becomes tied to having a place, and that that place is one which you in which you accept your isolation, uh, and in isolation seek a kind of freedom. Um, it's a rejection of the notion of diaspora as a process, but rather to understand diaspora as an event. Those Jews in Renaissance uh, 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 Spain suffered a diasporic, uh, diasporic rejection. They were thrown out of Spain, and they made this strange home for themselves in Venice so that their wanderings ended. And it's often been said that, that, the, um, uh, that there's something resonant about that notion of ghettoization in the foundations of the Israeli state. Uh, it's uh, another version of Judaism is that diaspora is a condition more akin to what uh, Herzen was talking about, that it is a con it's an ongoing process of adjusting different weights and balances. It's not a diaspora, is a process without a denouement, whereas for the Jews of Venice, it had that denouement. Uh, for Herzen, the notion about exile, being that kind of foreigner, is that it shouldn't have a denouement. And he's very, very subtle about this. He said, our political beliefs in rights and justice are supported and strengthened by the fact that we belong nowhere. It's an extraordinary statement. That is, for somebody who really has made a decision, in his case, something that seemed very abstract to us, for constitutional government, that that decision, the belief in that principle, is strengthened by the fact that he belonged personally nowhere. That was his home, was this idea. Um, I guess one way to look at this in terms of the Gordon Brown proposition, which is that people should think of themselves more as British, 
would be that for Herzen, Britishness is a pressure from without that should be resisted from within. And his notion is that you should participate without assimilating. That was his notion of how a foreigner lives in a foreign place. Uh, participate, but do not settle. That was his notion. And you do that because precisely in that ambiguous diasporic condition, to think of it generally, you become someone who is capable of voluntarily upholding an ideal or a belief. Now, I just want to, and I'm sorry, I'm a very link, like all college teachers, I'm very long-winded, so I'm going to stop talking at this point. But I do want to tell you about how this sort of wound up as an issue in, uh, in an event in my family. We are a family of, uh, I don't know, about 20 times over-exiled, but um, my particular branch of this family are Russian exiles, half Christian and half uh, Jewish, uh, who left in bewildering patterns uh, uh, from various places throughout the 19th century. After the Second World War, part of my family, uh, the, the leader of part of my family, was quite a wealthy man. And he founded a movement called Return and Confront in 1946. And Return and Confront was one of the first attempts to uh, invite people who had been displaced from Europe by the Nazis or uh, the communists to return to the places where they had lived before with the financial uh, help of return and confront. Uh, and that went, went all the way from giving people living expenses to paying for lawyers to try and regain property that had been seized by the Nazis and so on. And this great-grandfather of mine happened uh, to be Jewish. He was in that side of the family. And he came into a phenomenal battle. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With the early Zionists trying to set up the state of Israel, because what he was proposing is something like the logic of Alexander uh, Herzen, which is, for the sake of what you believe in, this case, democracy, uh, 
for the sake of, of, of justice, whether that's the particular justice of getting property you had before or, or of confronting those uh, who, um, who oppressed you, you must go to a place where you were not, where you were not wanted, where you, from which you were exiled. And to Golda Meir in particular, my great-grandfather, my great-granduncle, uh, was the devil incarnate. Uh, because the last thing Jews should do is relaunch the condition of being exiles and foreigners. It's the last thing they should be doing. Um, and my great-granduncle became a pariah, all the usual uh, things applied to him, self-hating Jew. You, you know, you can spin it out. Uh, it's, it's 60, more than 60 years of developing this rhetoric. But he kept on with this, and to, I think to his great credit, he began to expand this to other groups in the Second World War uh, who were also exiled. Uh, for instance, he reached out to Catholics who had had uh, to flee Poland and Hungary and tried to reestablish them before the communist yoke came down too strongly back in uh, Poland. Uh, he made some very tentative uh, moves to uh, help homosexuals who had survived the, the concentration camps to reestablish themselves in somewhere in Europe. Uh, and uh, most of all, he dealt with the Roma, who are the great unaccounted in... Uh, the history of the Shoah. They're unaccounted literally because we, we know that more than a million were killed, but absolutely no records were kept of them. And so he began uh, giving them money to resettle in Romania. Much of that money, I have to say, disappeared in very mysterious ways, but he gave it. But the logic that he had about this was, as it were, to prefer... Um, the condition that Herzen lived in to the condition that the Jews lived in in Renaissance Venice. And I must say that speaking personally, I think that the Herzen way of being a foreigner is for us today a more viable practice than either trying to put people in touch with their roots or forcing them uh, to assimilate. So when if you do read this, it must be very inexpensive, this beautifully produced book. <laughs> if you do read it, um, what you will read is a kind of pull between these two poles. And it's one that the writer of this has also felt because of, uh, of uh, uh, this... Uh, this uh, Movement, this political movement in uh, my family. So, thank you. I'm so sorry to talk so long. Uh, if I could just get a glass of wine, if you have some comments, I would, I would love to get some reaction. We have a roving mic. A roving mic. Don't be shy. Ask me questions. Here's some. Yes, tiny 
seems to me from uh, a recollection of uh, something that Eric Hobsbawm said that um, in fact the very large majority of Jews have chosen the Herzen way uh, and certainly South Africa um, is an example of people who have uh, often stuck to an idea as uh, the right. important thing uh, in their lives yes. and rather than than going to Israel, though many also did that. Some, some did, and then went went back. Um, but in a way, that's a kind of internal exile that they they didn't leave South Africa. They um, they stayed and and fought, even though they were dis, dispossessed. Um, I mean, this obviously this whole issue about exile has many, many dimensions. I hope it's clear, by the way, that what I'm not talking about is immigrants. That is somebody who goes for economic reasons someplace else, uh, when they, as happened with Poles here uh, eight or ten years ago, when they've made enough money they go home and so on. This is a condition of uprooting. And sometimes that can happen within a society, and people just, you know, hold on uh, uh, without the feeling that they really belong somewhere else. Um, uh, I mean, it has to be said about the the, and I would say this since it sounds like I'm I, I'm taking Hertzen's part against the making of this ghetto that probably any of us if you were Jewish in 1493 the notion of spending a a lifetime wandering around Europe with no home would not be a terribly attractive prospect to you I mean you'd want community you'd you'd want some kind of strength in numbers so you know, it's not a kind of atavism, or it's not a kind of um, a kind of clubbiness that does this. I mean, people need to hold together to survive. The real ghetto story is about what happens in time to people. You pay a price for every strength comes with a weakness, as we know in life, and the strength of having this mutual protection is also uh, comes at the price of a certain loss of a a kind of freedom. And in the case of these, it's been argued with the Venetian Jews that something happened to the idea of Judaism itself in that. Judaism was long, like primitive Christianity, was a religion of the word, and the word was mobile. I mean, Jesus, as a Jew, belonged nowhere. As he frequently said to his followers, abandon your families, abandon your communities, and come with me. Uh, and even in St. Paul, we see that's, that still call to, to leave the community, to abandon it. Well, Jews had n- normalized that, in, many Jews, because outside of Spain... They were constantly on the move. There were, uh, as you know, the 
the Brits expelled their Jews in the, was it the 13th century, late 12th century. So you have this mobile population that's constantly fragmenting and so on. So the Venetian Jews were the first ones who, by tying the religion to being in one place, had a measure of self-protection. But it also altered the religion of the word, became instead being Jewish, having a set of anthropological practices. Uh, that's what I'm talking about in, in, in this sort of thing. Ask me a tough, tough question. Tell me where it's wrong. This is my cousin Donald Sassoon, the great historian of 19th century uh, socialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Eddie. Um, um, I'm, I'm slight, I mean, the, it's all very interesting, but when you said that you do not, you're not talking about immigrants. Right. You're talking about exiles. Um, foreigners, yeah. Well, you're talking about foreigners, but the Jews, so let me say it's only two things. The Jews who went to Venice eventually became Italian, yes. became extremely Italian, regarded themselves as totally Italian. They were patriotic. They were, um, you know, they were involved, some of yeah. them, in the Risorgimento and so on. They were, in fact, in the 19th century, precisely because the movement of nationalism, uh, as in many other countries, right. was anti-Catholic. They felt quite at home there, right. since it was a yeah. form of being able to being Jewish and Italian at the same. So they were quite assimilated. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it may have taken two or three centuries. Well, but, it, but that, well, in no, my just, period, just one, it, it, they aren't. They they have no they have no rights. In your system. period, yeah. yes, yes. It took a long time. It took a long time. But an immigrant, uh, take then an Italian immigrant, not a Jew, yes. an Italian who leaves the Venetian era just to stay there, goes to the United States in the 1880s. And for a while, as you know, he remains Italian. Right. Many go back. Um, in other words, he also doesn't quite feel at home in the United right. States. His grandchildren are probably patriotic American. One of them runs the CIA nowadays, but, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's all right. But, but, you know, why is there such a big difference between your Jews of Venice expelled from Spain and my Italian immigrant who is expelled, in a way, by hunger? Well, you know, the, one of the differences is that the moment your Italian um, takes American citizenship... Uh, they have political rights. Uh, it took the Jews of Venice un until the Napoleonic era, until 1796, to have the rights, uh, political rights of other Venetians. It's a very long time. Uh, but I would say the difference is this, and it's a very good thing that you raise this. When we talk about immigrants... Um, today, what we're talking about is an aspiration, immigration as a, as, a, as, as a social phenomenon. We're talking about an aspiration of people who are displaced uh, to make a new life for themselves, 
based on enjoying the same rights that other people enjoy. It's why almost every economically migrant group, uh, when you have people who are illegal immigrants, uh, they're obsessed about how they, most of them, about how uh, they can get some of the status of, of legals. I mean, there are exceptions to this, but it's something we know about about economic migrants. Because once you've got political rights, whether you're culturally and you've still got an accent, you still dream of home and so on, you belong in that place in the eyes of the dominant society. And if you've earned that as by American citizenship, you pass your test, etc., etc., that's a possession. Now, neither Herzen nor the... Um, Venetian Jews were in that position. Herzen had no idea of exercising, he, didn't, he wasn't a rights-bearing subject, as we would say in, in modern parlance. He didn't think that because he was a man, a human being, that he should have rights in England. You know, there was no notion of human rights for him. Uh, he was someone whose political beliefs did not depend on the notion of being a citizen somewhere else. And of course the Venetian Jews for, you know, for nearly uh, four centuries couldn't dream of it. So I think that's a, it's a huge uh, uh, difference. And I think for many modern foreigners, something I've remarked among uh, Muslims who are here in Britain, that they want those political rights. They need them. At the same time, the, uh, they don't want political assimilation to entail cultural assimilation. Assimilation. And that's just, it's a conflict. Any, any displaced person goes through now who wants the protections of a new state goes through some of that kind of conflict. You want political right without necessarily being subject to the pressures to integrate socially or culturally. Uh, political exile isn't really quite, that isn't quite what the point of it is about. Uh, you are away from something. You don't go into an exile in order to find a better place. You're often forced out uh, you can't go back, but you're orientated on the fact of being expelled or expulsed. And it's, that, it's those sorts of differences that lead me to try and make a distinction between feeling oneself an immigrant, which is an arrival, which is encoded in rights, and feeling a foreigner, where the notion of being encoded as a rights-bearing subject, political rights abroad, is not something that's really the reason that you interpret your life as being mobile in this way. Does that, does that make sense? Sort of. We'd have to, we have to talk it out. That's the trouble with you. <laughs> yeah. I wonder where George Steiner's thinking fits into this subject, because if I'm right, um, he believes that Jews should not seek a homeland of their own, but their greatest 
contribution to civilization is to be the eternal wanderer and the eternal outsider. Right. Well, I'm sorry you've asked me this question. Can I answer it without reference to him? Uh, uh, I, 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 I'm allergic to his writing. I just, it's just a personal reaction. Uh, um, however, that said, um, I think the issue about that is, um, is a complicated one. Uh, one of the ways in which the image of the wandering Jew was constructed by other people is that this is somebody untrustworthy because he never belongs anywhere because he's not a member of your group it's in a way the Shakespeare idea in The Merchant of Venice Um, that this is a person who is whatever he says, he's not really trustworthy. So for Jews, that tag, the wandering Jew, is, you know, as it's been constructed by others, something that's fairly um, it's prejudicial. Um, the other thing I'd say about this, and uh, this is just a, a, a side reaction is to to what you've said is um, anybody who thinks about themselves as an outsider has to be fairly um, rigorous with themselves uh, and fairly coruscating it's very easy to think because you're an outsider, that you're better than the natives. You know? There is a way in which people who cast themselves in the role of outsider can do a kind of self-flattery. Uh, and uh, I've observed that among um, uh, many people, not all of whom are Jewish, and I think it's a kind of condition that requires uh, a certain amount of modesty because when we are an outsider, we are seeing things that people who take things for granted don't see. This was a famous essay by the German-Jewish sociologist Georg Simmel called The Stranger, who argued that what strangers do when they come into a society is that they think about the logic of habits. When people, things people just have as habits, they go, why? And so that they serve a critical function. But I think what Simmel leaves out of this is the fact that um, uh, you can easily succumb to a kind of grandiosity. You know, I don't fit in. It's a kind of version of that adolescent thing you know, everybody else is blind, but I. You remember that when you were 16? Or was it 50? I can't remember. Uh, but I alone see it. So, you know, that's another side of this. And I think it's a problem that Jews have had to face culturally because they are asking about habit. 
but it can be something that can be a source of immodesty as, as well. Can we take one more question? And then I, I don't want to keep you past your drinks time and supper time. Let me have one more question. And then. Two. You have two questions. <laughs> um, thank you. To begin with, you mentioned um, the gratitude that um, it, exiles felt, and that was a driver towards assimilating. Um, I'm reading Linda Grant at the moment. She talks oh. about mouse people. <laughs> yeah, she's um, so wonderful. And yeah. it, it seems actually the opposite of what you've just said. It seems yeah. that the, the generation of Jews that I know who came here were very proud to learn English, and, and right. speaking Yiddish was something that you did in the home in the old land, and to reject it was a sign that you'd become a West Ender, not an East Ender, and a, and a right. Brit. Right. Um, and it's just got me thinking in relation to the census, actually, that we've had to fill in at the moment, because we had a debate in, in my house about uh, white British other. <laughs> um, what is white British other? Th- other than you can be white British, white English, white oh, Irish, or you can be white British other. Um, uh, white Scottish as well, sorry. Um, and the, the conversation was about this notion of ethnicity. You, you used the phrase anthropology before, the, the word yes. anthropology before, and I, I wondered whether the resurgence of ethnicity that's coming up now as a way to distinguish between assimilation and cultural and actually tribal racinated notions of identity right. and, and whether or not Britishness now and multiculturalism now looks at a new layer of complexity that is both... British, English first language, racially apart and separate and different, um, but very much of here. And I wondered if you could just speak to that and whether or not the notion of exile could incorporate that idea or whether it's a a coda and it needs a whole new thesis. This is a wonderful (laughs) question, and uh, I'll I'll try and repress my desire to speak to you at length about, about this. I mean, one of the things that happens with lots of migrants is that they come to accept the notion that they have multiple identities, which operate at the same time. Uh, and um, it's why when Brown was celebrating Britishness, you know, people like even me, who come, you know, from another continent, were saying, "Well, yes, but you know, multiple identity is a phenomenon that is." something that people have to learn to manage, but once they learn to manage, is a very rich phenomenon. It's, we actually know a little about greater or lesser degrees of multiple identity. And people who are political exiles don't develop this to the same degree as people who are economic migrants, for instance. Herzen is talking about one version of multiple identity. And I think what Donald Sassoon is referring to is that eventually the Jews of Venice, uh, after a very long period of time, also had a kind of multiple identity. But in the lifetime of people who are actually displaced, this is a lot to ask. You know? If somebody is uh, uh, um, exiled because of their political uh, beliefs. 
the notion that they can all at once strike this balance of a multiple identity makes huge, huge uh, demands uh, on people. I, I give you a, 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 an instance of this. My, one of my uh, closest friends uh, was the poet Joseph Brodsky, a uh, Russian poet who was uh, put in a mental hospital and then was exiled from the Soviet Union. And we, um, he came to New York. I spoke Russian with him all the time. Uh, and one day I said to him, do you think that someday, he was beginning to write in English, and I, I can't judge his poetry, but his English prose was a marvel. I would give anything to be able to write. And he said, actually, I, don't, I, I want with friends not to speak English. I don't want to get too far away from forgetting that I lost the place in which I spoke Russian. And I think I understand what that is. That simply having a multiple identity in that layered way would be for him a kind of denial of the trauma of what he had gone through. And I think for people who are cast into exile, that's important. It's all a matter of balances and weights. That's why I say there's no denouement in this story. It's a process. Diaspora, whatever form it takes, is a process without a denouement. Now, it might be that Joseph's uh, grandchildren will be just as you describe. But for him, it would have been asking too much. There would have been too much erasure in that of his own experience. So that's why I think it's a very, very... It's important to understand that when we think about people in these categorical terms, like exile, Muslim, Jew... Scottish, maybe, I don't, I don't know how it plays out, that these are not just fixed categories. They're, they're actually, well, let's put the Scots apart. I'm sure they suffered terribly, but let's put them out of this discussion at the moment. But they're, they're labels for what is actually an experience which is constantly being recomposed. And this Herzen motto, I look in the mirror and see someone who is not myself, is a way of life. It's not alienation just. It's also a way of coming to terms with the flow of experience. So I, um, I think what you say is absolutely Right. For most displaced people in time, that's what will happen, this layering of multiple identity. But during the period of displacement, or if the provocation is ongoing, as it was for Jews in diaspora, because most of them, particularly in Eastern Europe, had to keep moving. Their, their communities were not stable. Then this is the challenge of how people have to deal with the fact of being someone, not oneself, someplace else. You have to live with that. And that's what this mirror is about. Let me just end this by saying that the image for this comes from the great painting 
of Manet's Bar au Folie Berger, which I discuss in this piece. Um, when you look into the, uh, there's a mirror behind the barmaid, Bar au Folie Berger, and when you look into it, you see someone who is not you. It's a very strange mirror. There is a face reflected, but it's not your face. It's a skull, almost a skull-like figure. So that's the Herzen moment of vision. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be fine. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.